Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I'm so happy to be with you, City on a Hill. Happy to be back with you. Brought my family today and they're always blessed by you. You are a blessing. You are a source of encouragement to the Richter family. And I hope that uh, if you are new here to City on a Hill, I hope you realize, and certainly by seeing that video of the Compassion Sunday, I hope you realize what a good place this is, what a, uh, a place that cares about the community. And I hope you share in some of that encouragement. And I hope you feel encouraged and blessed as you're here today as well. Last week, I came here and uh, I started teaching on Isaiah. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, and it occurs to me that the old prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament talks all about the attributes of God. Now, this may sound like a total snooze fest, attributes of God, but let me tell you why this is so important. What you believe about God, whatever it is, whatever you walked in here with, whatever, you know, if he's the man upstairs, or he's my big divine buddy in the sky, or he is a god of, you know, great terror who's ready to smite anyone who looks like they're even close to having fun, right? Judgmental. I mean, what, do you, what is it? Is it, the, you know, the big Gandalf looking with the long beard and sort of on a rocking chair in heaven? Whatever you're, listen, whatever you believe about God, that's going to trickle down to every single thought, action, habit, character trait, it all comes back to what do you believe about God? And so we've got to get our doctrine of God right. We've got to find out who is God. Above all, a church should proclaim who God is. So last week, does anybody remember the attribute God? God is, anybody? That makes me feel good. Holy, yes. Yes, a few of you got it. That's right. Holy, that's okay. If you weren't here, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We talked about His holiness. And today, the attribute we'll be discussing is His wrath. The wrath of God. Aren't you so glad you came to church today? I'm so glad I brought my sweet family to hear about the wrath of God. And I'm not kidding. This isn't like some intro where I'm like, psych, we're not really talking. We're absolutely going to talk about the attribute of wrath today. So if you're new to church, maybe you saw the yellow shirts a couple weeks ago. And you thought, you know, I could use more love in my life. And I see this beautiful church doing beautiful things. They're taking, for example, a patch of dirt and making it beautiful. And that's what I need. I need my life to be beautiful. And you feel guilty about so many things. And you come here to church. You say, well, I'll give this church a chance. And the preacher gets up and says, we're going to talk about God's wrath. And you're like, I tried, Lord. Okay, you see, I tried. Well, the good news is I'm not a pastor here. I'm just a guest speaker. (laughs) But listen, I couldn't do it. How do you look at the God of the Bible and not talk about it? Am I supposed to go through Isaiah and skip the hard parts and just get to certain parts? Let's, Let's talk about this. What is this? When you read the Old Testament, when you read through the scriptures, has no one ever been thrown off? You read stuff and it's like the, the Bible's not exactly what you thought it was. There's all kinds of stuff in here. How do we make sense of this? We know that in the New Testament, it doesn't say God is wrath. It says God is love. 
So how do we think through that? How, what then does wrath have to do with love? Well, okay, let's start with a definition. What is the wrath of God? In just a few minutes, I'm going to draw you to Isaiah. If you want to go ahead and begin turning there, we're going to start in chapter 9. I'll put the verses up here. But before we do, just a definition. What is the wrath of God? God's wrath is his active, resolute opposition to all evil. It's his active, resolute opposition to all evil. His delight is intrinsic to his being. His wrath is provoked by the defiance of creatures. His love, in other words, will never make peace with our evil. Now, I want you to see that God's wrath is perfect. It's no less perfect than we, when we say His perfect are the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. He is perfect in patience. He's perfect in forbearance. He's perfect in kindness and he is perfect in his wrath his wrath is not moody vindictiveness you know part of the reason we have a hard time understanding wrath is many of us have grown up around wrathful people that did not do wrath correctly they flew off the handle they were full of a a rage they were perhaps abusive this isn't like that this is a just judge who slowly and deliberately and patiently sifts through all the evidence and clearly weighs out what must be done and then executes that verdict or imagine a surgeon cutting out a cancerous tumor. He's putting wrath into that work in the sense that he, he, will, he will not be okay just to leave a little bit of the cancerous tumor behind. But both the judge and the surgeon are not really a good example of God's wrath because uh, uh, those are too clinical, too sterile. With God, it's personal. You know what I mean? Like a judge, ultimately, he's going to make his decision, then he's going to go home to his world. And the surgeon cares about you. He's doing good work. But at the end of the day, he's going home to his world. God's wrath is personal. And so I thought of a very mundane illustration, but I thought it got closer than surgeon or judge. And it's uh, my little nephew. His name's Isaac. And when he, uh, he's totally into Legos. I don't know if you're into Legos or, I mean, your kids. It's for the kids. Um, nine years old, and all he wanted for Christmas was a Lego Death Star. Now, if you're not familiar, what it's not like a satanic emblem. It's a it's a, from Star Wars. Anyway, uh, he wanted this thing, and it was massive. I didn't know. You know now that I'm getting old, my kids are getting old enough to begin purchasing Lego sets. I realized, wow, these things. I thought they were little, like five dollar toys. These are like, yeah, 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 silly Tom. I know. Yeah. Well, this thing's massive. It's got like you know four thousand pieces or something. It's like five hundred dollars. It's crazy. It's massive, and everybody else having a great time over Christmas holiday. I was down there visiting, and Isaac's locked up in his room. He got the Death Star for Christmas, so he's putting it all together. And we're like, Isaac, don't you want to have fun with the rest of the family? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm working here, right? I mean, right all into the night, he comes out. His eyes are bloodshot. Just here to get food. Right, and goes back, and we're like, man, don't you want to like hang out? No, that's all he wanted to do. And when he got done with this thing, after days of spending the days after Christmas on this, locked in a room, when he gets done, he walks out, and he could have said, he could have said, you know, it's done, I want you to see it, but he didn't. He walked out like only a nine-year-old can, dead serious, and says, oh, I assure you, this Death Star is fully operational. <laughs> yes! Yes, you did! We go in there, and I mean watching him, the creator delighting in his creation. That's the only word I could think of was delight. And it was sublime. i got to admit, it was perfect. And all the little pieces worked, and everything moved. And we're looking, and as, as we're rejoicing and delighting in it, it's almost like his delight is even delightier watching us delight in it, right? It's awesome. Now, if I walked up to that Death Star, and I took one little Lego and just popped it out of place and kind of uh, uh, stuck it out to the side or whatever, and said, now, what about that now? Let's just leave it like that. 
laser-like intensity upon which mine... What? It's just one little piece. There's 4,000 pieces. They're all fine. Don't let this one little piece that's out of place... Don't let that bother you, Isaac. Come on, let's go do something else. Over my dead body, Isaac's thinking. Are we... Right? When I assure you what... For him, the only word I would describe is wrath. His wrath for that Lego piece that's out of line. It doesn't belong. It's against the created order. And I'm not okay with it. Right? He's going to destroy. He's going to fix that. Why? Because it doesn't belong that way. I made it good and I'm not okay. The only word is wrath and it's personal. Sin does not belong in your life. And God is not just sort of clinically noticing that fact. He is not okay with that which does not belong. And with laser-like intensity, and it is personal, he's not okay with evil and sin in his people. He loves you too much. So we really have to invent a new word for wrath because it's unlike anything we've ever seen in a human. We do wrath wrong. Okay? We do wrath wrong. Unless your business card says God of the universe, you don't need to be in the wrath business. You know why? You don't have the knowledge you need to be a good judge. Because you don't know. People always say, well, I know what you're going to say. I'd probably be too hard on my enemies. Or maybe not hard enough. You don't know. I mean, just to encourage you, right? However much evil you think they deserve, it may be worse, right? But it may be worse for me too. See, unless, and God can see everything clearly. So he does wrath perfectly. So I think we should, like Ray Ortland invented a new word I like. He calls wrath God's loving anger kindness. That's pretty good, right? Monkey, baby, puppy. It's kind of all loving anger, kindness. Kind of this all big. I just imagine this. Do you understand? Loving anger, kindness. It's all in there together. You can't separate it. So let's check it out. Isaiah chapter 9. Turn there. Let's start in verse 8. I'm going to review a little bit of context. Isaiah 1 through 5 is the preface. You remember last week, Isaiah 6 is his call. Chapter 7. He first talks to the southern kingdom, Judah, 7, 8, early part of 9. And he says, there's going to be this loving anger kindness. And in the end, there'll be hope. And then in 9, 8 through 11, he does the same thing with the northern kingdom, Israel. Now, here's if you're not familiar with the Old Testament history, a little bit of background. Under King Saul and then David and Solomon, think a thousand years B.C., a thousand years before Christ, the, the, the children of Israel had this like zenith. It was at their high point. And they, they were together and they had all this wealth and all this power. And then things, uh, after Solomon, the kingdom was ripped in half. The southern kingdom just had two tribes. The northern kingdom had ten. What gets confusing is the southern kingdom called themselves Judah. They named themselves after one tribe. And the northern kingdom kept the name Israel. That's why it's confusing. Because in this case, we're talking about just the northern kingdom. But you say, but aren't they the whole thing Israel? Well, yeah. But, but in this case, the northern kingdom is Israel. So he's just talked to the southern kingdom. He's made a prophecy. Now, what we're going to look at today is his prophecy toward the northern kingdom, Israel. Look at what he says. The best way to think of this. I, I normally don't do this. I normally just focus on one passage and, and really dive deep into one small section. Today, it's going to be a little bit broader. So I thought I'd break it up for you. The only way I know to understand his prophecy against the northern kingdom here in these chapters is to think of them as four stanzas. Of a poem or four verses in a song. And each one has this horrifying, they're horrifying. And each one has this horrifying refrain at the end. The refrain at the end for all this, his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. 
That's how each of these poems end. So to do that, I'm sorry, I had to put them very small to fit them on one screen. This is the first of the four stanzas. Here we go. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that's ways of referring to the northern kingdom, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bri- so the bricks have fallen. We'll build with dressed stones. So the sycamores have been cut down. We'll put cedars in their place. In other words, God had been trying to get their attention. He's using, he's using the Assyrians. He's using these war, warring factions. They come in and they, you know, hurt them and they go, who cares? No big deal. God's going, wake up. Big deal. No, you tear down our bricks. We'll just, you, we, you, you. So the bricks have fallen. We'll build it back. The, the idea of bricks versus dressed stones. They're saying, so the bricks have fallen. We'll not only build back bricks. We'll build back better. dressed stones, meaning like, you know, granite and really beautiful stuff. Oh, oh, the sycamores have been cut down. Who cares? We'll build back cedars. We're going to build back even better. What do the Lord think of that? Well, the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him. Adversaries of resin was a poetic nickname for Assyria. Oh, he's going to raise Assyria, stir up the enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. How does this apply to us? When, the attitude when God disciplines us, when you talk about wrath, the first human response that should come to mind is some humility. God, what are you saying? I'm listening. You've, you've knocked off bricks of my life. You're, you're knocking down towers. Okay, Lord, you got our attention and, and you humble yourself. Here, Israel does the opposite. Oh, Oh, God, you know, these these things happen. Instead of going, God, what are you doing? I'm going to inquire of the Lord. No, the the, the thing here that God despises so much is self-salvation. In other words, whatever comes my way, I live by my own hand. Doesn't matter. And the more God pours out to get your attention, the more you think, doesn't matter. Everything I need, the power I need, to save myself is found right here. It's in me. This kind of pride amounts to spitting in the face of God, and that is what God is against. Now, look, I'm not one to ever get all political, and I certainly do not want to align myself with a particular political party in this day and age, nor do I align myself with certain modern self-proclaimed prophets who I believe do, uh, they just butcher the word of God, when they say that America is in every way Israel 2.0. That every Old Testament word that was spoken to Israel, you can take it, cut, paste, and it's spoken to America, it's the same thing. I disagree with that. I do not believe that is true, and I believe it is. It's, it, it, it doesn't do justice then to Israel or America, what God might be saying. Okay, does everybody understand that? So I'm not trying to get all crazy and, and you know, Glenn Beck on everybody. I just wanted to point out, okay... Uh, you know, the other thing that bothers me, these prophets, now America's lost his way. In 2016, we've lost our way. We used to be this great epitome of moral righteousness. You know, when we gave all the Native Americans smallpox and moved that, you know, or slavery, you know, that then, oh yeah, then we had the moral high ground. But now, you know, we had prayer in school and slaves. The point is, we've always been a complicated people, right? Fair enough? So I'm not one to get all self-righteous on this. Having said all of that massive disclaimer... The uh, day after 9-11, Congress gets together and 
some congressmen and senators, they do a proclamation. They were doing what everybody was doing. They were just trying to figure out, based on what I do, I'm a preacher, they were congressmen, they were senators, we're all trying to figure out what do we do after 9-11. And congressmen get together and they make speeches and proclamations. That's what they do. I preach sermons, so that's what I did. We all did our thing, you understand? But on the day after 9-11, on on, uh, 9-12, this is Senator Tom Daschle's speech uh, to the U.S. Senate on the terrorist attacks. It's just a minute long, just a minute clip. I know that there is only the smallest measure of inspiration that can be taken from this devastation. There is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that I think speaks to all of us at times like this. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with seeds. That is what we will do. Mm. We will rebuild and we will recover. The people of America will stand strong together. Because the people of America have always stood together. So like two things. One, in the days after 9-11, I probably said some crazy stuff and didn't proofread carefully every bit of my speech. Okay, so let's show some grace to the senator who's doing what we're all doing. We're grasping for stuff. Um... So two things. One, he needs to fire his speech proofreader, right? Because you don't quote the very thing God hates is when he gets our attention and we say, bricks, bricks fell down, we'll rebuild. And like our leaders are saying the very thing that God's going to pour out judgment on. Everybody, everybody, okay. And the second thing is let's have grace for this senator who, believe me, I'm a guy who's on podcasts, I'm recorded. And sometimes I think, man, if some smart aleck took a one-minute clip of something I said 10 years ago, I would oh, be so mad, you know. Uh, so we need to have grace uh, for our senator who may not have fully understood the implications of what he's saying. He's just looking. And, hey, he's, at least he's looking at the Bible, you know. So uh, do that. Here's the thing. I'm not so worried about Tom Daschle. I'm worried about Tom Richter. Here's why. I don't have a national platform to speak for my country, but I've spoken from my heart. And when God has got my attention, I've just dug down deeper and said, well, I'll just work harder then. Or I'll just, no, 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 I'll just, no, I'll just show them that I'm right. I'll show them that they're wrong. I will not yield. I will not apologize. I will not repent. I'll just come back harder and stronger than ever. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. And I'm not listening. When God is using failure or he's using hurt, Are you just seeing brokenness? Don't you see? The fury of his wrath is the fury of his love. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. So the first application, if you're looking for what am I going to do with this in a sermon on wrath, I'll tell you what, humble yourself before the Lord. Let's turn to the second stanza. Well, the people didn't. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Just stop right there. When God speaks, your biggest mistake is to turn away from Him instead of turning towards Him. So turn to Him. Inquire of the Lord. God, what do you want done in my life? Not just what do I want you to do. Command me. 
And so because of this, look what the Lord does. The Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. Head and tail there, it means just, we would say today, from, from head to foot, you know, the, 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 the whole nine yards. In one day, may refer to the fall of Samaria. It happened, in fact, in one day in 722 BC. The elder and honored man's the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord doesn't rejoice over their young man. Young men has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. Everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. I think about this. When we stop inquiring of the Lord, I'm talking about the, the nation. I'm talking about us as individuals. When, when we stop inquiring of the Lord, we don't stop inquiring. You catch that? When we don't, when we don't inquire of the Lord, we don't stop inquiring. We just inquire of the honored man and the celebrity and the prophet and the talk show host and the self and the college professor. Right? And what do we expect in a nation reacting against God? What kind of wisdom do we expect from head or tail? The world is happy to disciple your children. And they've been doing it a long time. I heard Tim Keller at a conference this week I went to, and he made a great point. He said, when I was a kid, we were worried about the influence of, those, of the world's culture coming to us through this new medium called television. And he says, that seems so naive now. Because it was maybe one hour a night. And I was like, wow, Tim, you got to watch a lot of TV. You know, some of you is like an hour a week, you know, right? He says, now, your kids 24-7. And so he says, what happens is, when, when they're sitting in this church as 20, 30, 40-year-olds, they all proclaim to be Christians, but their, their, their whole mindset has been shaped by the world. And that's why they look at you funny when you cross any sort of worldly American values. They've been indoctrinated. You have been discipled by the world for so long. And the Bible says you've got to renew your minds, right? The church has never faced that. We've never faced that kind of onslaught. We've never faced this before. But when the Holy Roman Empire made everybody be Christians, the church faced it. And they came up with something called monasticism and rescued the church. And then when things got crazy and powerful in the halls of the church, they came up with something called the Reformation. And when the Enlightenment came along and it was all about science and reason, the fire of the great revival started. I don't know what our answer is going to be. But my hope's on your kids. And the church is going to prevail. But we've got to work like never before to figure out what we're going to do to disciple and train our people like never before. Because when they stop inquiring of the Lord, they don't stop inquiring. And so these little sponges are soaking all this up. And for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And he's right and he's perfect in that wrath. The one group of people I didn't pick on is the one mentioned, by the way, the prophet who teaches lies. Worst of all, the pastors have lost their way. But we won't spend long on that. That's, that's too convicting. <laughs> right, though? I mean, come on. Even when, when... Anyway. Let's go to stanza three. This is so fun. Let's continue in our journey through God's wrath. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns, kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. 
They slice meat on the right, still hungry. Devour on the left, not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. These are God's people. And together they're against Judah. All God's people fighting it out, eating each other. And for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is interesting. When we think of God as the, uh, the, the, God's wrath as the active outpouring of his wrath, notice there's another sense in which his wrath, in many ways, is just the natural outworking of sin. In a sense, here, sin becomes its own punishment. It's like, at, at one point, it's like, remember in Romans 1, where it's like, eventually God just gave them over to their sinful lust. It's like, at, at some point, like the fire has been started and it's burning wildly out of control and it scorches everything. And this too is God's wrath. Just the natural outworking of sin. And no one, look, no one, see that, see that right there? It's buried at the end of verse 19. People are like fuel for the fire and no one spares another. That's where this is going. Don't you see that? Don't you see it politically? Don't you see it in your workplace? Don't we even see it sometimes in our own families? I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he was, he was lamenting. He was talking about certain families in our neighborhood there in Queens seemed to always help each other. Particularly, he was picking out, and it doesn't matter the labels, but he was picking out particular ethnic groups. He was calling them out, and he goes, they help each other. And then he chose to talk about his own ethnic group, and he said, us, we're like a barrel of crabs. I said, please expound on that, for this will be a sermon illustration. Go on. <laughs> he said, I got to push you down to get up. I'll push you down to get up. He was describing no one spares one another. And here's the worst part of all. He was talking about people in the house of God. Devouring one another. Christians hating on other Christians. While the world's out there burning. We're picking on each other with no grace for each other. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Doggy dog world. There's leaves nobody left, right? So humble yourself before the wrath of God. Turn toward him, not from him. Sorry, I meant to tell you that second one for stanza two. Turn toward him. I mean, it's probably obvious, but turn toward him. And now this one, spare one another. One of the great marks of this humility is that you begin to overflow with not self-righteousness, but a sense of God's righteousness. And you go easy on each other and you help each other. Not for nothing, as I see God's grace, one of the, well, I'm not supposed to get to the hope yet. But just like, P.S., I see this in your church. Like a lack of, you've dialed down the judgment. You've dialed up the grace for one another. So pretend you didn't hear that because I'm supposed to save the hope for the end. But I see that. I see that. Okay, here we go. Stanza four in the four verse wrath song. Woe to those who, who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil that they may, may make the fatherless their prey by the way in every war the fatherless i mean i heard somebody from world vision or compassion he said in every war i can tell you the, the winner and the loser in every war and out in every war throughout history i can tell you the loser and I said, how can you do that, man? You don't know every single conflict and whose cause, you know, was really the right cause and all that. He goes, I, well, I tell you, it goes, okay, fine. I'll tell you the loser in every war. I said, well, who are you talking about? Expecting this big list. He goes, the poor. In every war, it's the fatherless that get crushed. And so he asked this question. And there's so many ones you could pick on on this particular passage. But he asked this question that this is the one that gets me. 
What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? Everybody in here thinks, everybody in the world thinks, yeah, but there's somewhere a little room. You know, there's a little wiggle room where I can get outside of the, the laser of God's wrath. You know, I was taking Anna to Costco uh, this week, unsupervised. It was just, I got to, you know. And, uh, and we were taking little Anna. And Costco sells these amazing heat dishes. They're amazing. Instead of a heater that heats the whole room, it's this sort of parabola dish that heats up. And I mean, it's just this like beam of heat. And it can be like freezing cold warehouse, freezing cold warehouse. Whoa, I'm in the tropics. Freezing cold, right? It's amazing. In just this one area, you stand in a, and at any point, if you get too hot, it's glorious. You just sort of step outside and suddenly there's nothing. Go back in, heat, go back out, nothing. What he's saying is when God's wrath is consuming, where are you going to step outside that beam of wrath? Nowhere. Where are you going to go? Your whole life, you've, you've, been, you've been able to get away because you know people. Oh, you know people? To whom will you flee for help? Wrath's on them too. Yeah, but I've always had a lot of money. Oh yeah? Where will you leave your wealth? Your only concern with money is who's going to get it because you're going to be gone. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. He's imagining Israel's elite being captive, carried off into exile, or dead. And that is exactly what happened. And for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Humble yourself, turn spare one another, and ultimately deal with God. Well, for Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, sure enough, it happened. And here's where God shows off his sovereignty. He, he used a pagan nation, right? He used Assyria, who was rising. He used a pagan nation to judge his people. This is what he says. Ah, Assyria. This is chapter 10, verse 5. So I'm just advancing about one, oh, one verse. I'm, I'm, that is the next verse. Ah, Assyria. The rod of my anger. Assyria thinks they're all big and bad. No, no, no. You are a tool. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him. This is what's amazing. If an Israelite heard that, they would go, the godless nation? Excuse me? Godless nation? Okay, we are the children of Israel. The godless nation refers to Assyria. The irony here, the godless nation is Israel. And he's using Assyria. Is that something? They're the people, the people of my wrath. That's who Israel is, people of my wrath. Unbelievable. And I don't want to make too much of the Assyrian thing, but you remember the story of Jonah, the crazy story about the prophet who tried to run away from God, ended up in the belly of the whale, uh, got puked up onto shore, and then, you know, nothing like whale vomit to change your view of God. And uh, uh, that's a whole, uh, that's my first album, by the way, Whale Vomit. It's a Christian rock band. The point is, I, uh, guy gets to Assyria. You remember this? This is unbelievable. Remember this? He, um, he tells him in an eight-word sermon, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. So unhappy about even having to preach. No gospel, no good news, no hope of what to do. Just burn, baby, burn. It's coming. Tick, tick, tick. I'm going to be up here on this mountain waiting for the fireworks, right? And he's up there. And what did he do? The people who, the Assyrians. I mean, talk about a godless nation. They sharpened their teeth because they wanted their enemies to think that they would cannibalize them. And sometimes they did. And so they would, they would file their teeth to a point. This is the Assyrians. No wonder Jonah didn't want to go. And they were doing it against Israel. No wonder he was so furious. You remember what the Assyrians did? You remember what these Ninevites did? These crazy Ninevites? Unbelievable. They say, 
Well, let's all fast and cry out to this God. We don't know who it is, but let's fast. Let's call it, let's call it fast. Well, what's a fast? Don't eat. What about drinking? Or drink. How long? I don't know. They start making stuff up. They have no clue about religion. So like three days. What about our cattle? And the livestock. And the cows are like, what we do? This is y'all's thing, right? And they make the livestock fast, which is hilarious to me. They're making the cattle starve to death. And you guys get right before God, right? They are absolutely making things up. They're making religion up as they go along. And what does God do? He spares them. And in the very last verse in Jonah, shouldn't I have cared about all these people and their cattle? He throws it in there. Because, hey, they fasted too. Give them a little shout. Here's my point. Assyria had no religion. They didn't have a clue. They had no formal structures of religion. And God was more moved by a pagan, irreligious nation whose heart was full of the fear of God than a nation who had all their religion perfect and their doctrine was spot on, but their hearts had no fear of God. And what God is looking for is authentic fear of God. And so he uses Assyria. And then Assyria, wouldn't you know it, Assyria gets all proud. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're the man. Yeah, Assyria. And they, you should read, you go back and read some of the speeches of the Assyrians kings. And they're basically like, I am God. I'm the God of the universe. So God's like, all right, now, hold up. Now, when the Lord God's finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And I could go on and on about the next verses of what he's going to do to Assyria. In other words, that's the thing. When when you say, like, God will use these things to judge you, it doesn't mean that he's a big fan of Assyria either in that sense. So he tells Assyria, oh, is the axe going to boast over him who hews with it? Is the saw magnify itself against him who wield it? You are the tool in my hand. And you start thinking you're God smash right what's god over and over what's he doing he's saying i'm consistent here and you notice the theme the theme is this god opposes the proud so none of those things have turned away his wrath he opposes the proud so much the end of chapter 10 is some imagery about a forest being cut down. And the infestation of human pride is like a vast forest cut down. God swings his axe and the whole evil system falls. Bare stumps as far as the eye can see. No branches waving around. No life. No movement. No sound. The world is dead. We could pause here and come back next week. But I thought that would be cruel. And I couldn't do it. You know, I once preached at a camp where they made me do all this talk about the wrath of God upon sin in the morning session and not give the good news of the gospel until the evening. And I said, yeah, it sounds like a good plan. And kids were like moping all day long, like it touched their hearts. But uh, a bunch of kids got saved that night, too. You know, there's something about receiving this word and not just saying, well, this is for somebody else. In the midst of all this, let's let's get to the hope. You ready? I am. Let's talk about some hope. In the midst of all this, look at what God says. In chapter 11, verse 1, out of all that forest that's dead, what's this? Something new. And the prophet strains to look ahead to see something God is showing him. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What in the world? You imagine an old, dead old stump, and out of this stump, a tender shoot. Hope. 
new growth. And it's going to grow so big that there's going to be fruit. And who is this? It's a person. Hey, Messiah, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's classic Messiah talk. People recognize the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He'll get it right. The spirit of counsel and might. He'll know how to go to war properly. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Like, yeah, that's what we're talking about. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Yes, that's just it. I, I always turn toward myself and my selfish ambitions. But here, this righteous shoot is going to going to fear the Lord. He's going to have delight. And he won't judge by what his eyes see, decide to speak by what his ears hear. He'll actually be able to see through all this stuff. See, with righteousness, he'll judge the poor. Decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll finally get it right. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Yes, that's what it's all about. Someone who's coming who can get it right. Finally, a king who can, who can restore. Who, who, it's like he can live the life we should have lived. That person's going to get it right. And what kind of kingdom is he going to bring? I don't, I don't know what promises you've been promised politically, but nobody can promise something like this. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the, and the, and the fatted calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my at all in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea it's a world that slightly resembles ours but there's some noticeable differences all the historic animosity is gone wars cease to the ends of the earth all the violence and churning of this world just like jesus calm in the storm peace be still with a word peace will be still and all will be well and a little child will lead them Not just inner peace, a cessation to all violence. No more hatred, no more suffering, no more reason for sadness. The wolf lives with the lamb. They're roommates. They look at the little, the little, uh, the little leopard who wants to eat that goat. Now lies down. They draw warmth from one another. My favorite is what's the one about the ox? Yeah, the cat, that's it. The cow and the bear. The ox and the bear shall graze. Isn't that great? Instead of the, normally the, the bear just wants to, you know, eat the ox. Instead, they're eating off the same plate. Restoration and renewal of all things. Now, how could a man, a human like you and me, accomplish that? I mean, David himself, King David, that's, Je- oh, I should have said, when it says shoot of Jesse, Jesse is the daddy of David. I should have said that. And David was the greatest king Israel's ever known. And so, 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 okay, so even David couldn't give us that kind of perfect kingdom. How could a shoot of Jesse do that? How could a human offspring do that? The answer is in the next verse. Look, look, look. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, the nation shall inquire and his resting place be glorious. That's our last verse. What? He went from being called. Go back and look. He went from being called the shoot of Jesse. Now he's the root of Jesse. See, at first, he's a son of David. He is the shoot of Jesse. He comes out of Jesse. And here, he's like Jesse's ancestor. He's the 
root of Jesse? How can he be both shoot and root? How can he be both descendant and ancestor? How can he be both seed and flowering shoot? And this is the surprise of the incarnation. The shoot, he is the son of Jesse. He's the new David, but he's the root. He's the creator of Jesse. He is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Creator of all things and little baby born in a manger, born in the house of David. He is both. That's how he can do it. Listen to me. The incarnation, that's that thing we celebrate at Christmas, right? God becoming flesh. J.I. Packer says, that's the greatest miracle in Christianity. And he said, if you grasp the incarnation, everything else should be a cakewalk. Because a lot of people are like, really? Resurrection? Really? Dead Nazarene Jew comes back from the grave? Really? Walking on water? Like, come on. I know molecules. Really? Feeding of the 5,000? And J.I. Packer says, really? Really? Incarnation? If the God of the universe can become a little baby, every, everything else is small potatoes. I never thought about that. He's like, you believe a lot of crazy things, but as a Christian, the ultimate miracle of faith is that you believe the incarnation that God became flesh. And listen to me, listen to me. He lived the life we should have lived. And Isaiah is going to continue. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But Isaiah is going to continue and he's going to tell us something else. That he died the death we should have died. And you want some hope? You want some hope put back in you when it comes to the wrath of God? Look at what he said. I, I, I won't even turn. Just, just listen to these words. Isaiah 53. Who's believed what he has heard from us? To whom's the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Oh, he had no form or majesty we should look at him. No beauty we'd desire him. No, instead he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. This... You notice the stanza over and over again. For this, God's wrath has not been turned away. For this, God's wrath has not been turned away. His hand is still outstretched, His act of wrath. Then what could turn away God's wrath? I'll tell you what. When the spotless, sinless Lamb of God stretched out His arms on Calvary's cross, He said these three words that put an end to those four horrible stanzas. He said, It is finished. Paid in full. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that we could be saved. And the cross, this, this verse 10, boy, if any of you have got the NIV or another version, I tell you, it's a little, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. The ESV says signal. Really, that word is banner. The Hebrew word's banner. Signal's fine. These guys are smarter than me, so what is? They picked signal. But of him shall the nations inquire. Every, so many other translations do it this way. Of him, the nations will rally around him. That he'll be the banner around which the nations rally. The cross... Oh, let me put it this way. In the War of 1812, you know this, a prisoner named Francis Scott Key uh, was on board a British prison ship 
And through the dark night, he longed to know whether or not the British had captured Fort McHenry. They're bombing all night. They're bombing this U.S. fort. He's been captured. And if they took that fort, all would be lost in the War of 1812. But the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air gave him proof through the night that the flag was still there. Listen, when you, oh, when you've sinned, Christian, listen to me. When you've sinned, when you've really blown it, when you're sitting on your own prison ship, hmm? and you know, you know, you should just be tossed aside by God. Don't you ever wonder, at what point will God just give up on you? What proof can you look to? What standard, what banner as the bombs and the rockets go off in your life? What will give you proof that our God is still there? Your banner is the cross. You look to Calvary's cross. When you wonder, won't there be a little bit of wrath left for me? No. As long as Calvary's cross happened, there is no wrath left for you, Christian. It's finished. And you're free to receive nothing but His grace. Oh, He'll correct you, sure. He'll, you'll receive correction just like any loving father would discipline his child. But listen to me, you will never, never, never feel the wrath of God. Do you hear me? Christian, that's a promise. You will never feel the wrath of God. Because why? There is no condemnation. It was born once for all by the Lamb of God for our salvation. So let's humble ourselves. Let's turn toward Him. Let's spare one another and stop running from God and deal with Him. Christian, rejoice in the great news of the gospel that his wrath has been turned away by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who no doubt, like me, wonder from time to time if we've blown it too much, if we've gone too far. And we know these passages in Isaiah. I mean, we know that you despise that pride And you oppose the proud. And so I thank you that you give grace to the humble. I thank you, Lord, for every brother and sister in this room who's placed their faith and trust in you. And God, I pray, if there's anybody here who's still rejecting you, who's not opened up their heart to you, oh God, that you would break them of that pride before it's too late. That they would be taken from being under the act of wrath and ready condemnation into your eternal life. I pray that. I pray for our friends. We have family members. We have co-workers. We have neighbors. They need to hear this precious good news that there is a Savior and that they can know for sure that they will not face the wrath of God. They can know it, not just guess it or hope for it or work hard for it. They can know it because of the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross. I pray that news would get out far and wide everywhere in New York and Long Island and around the globe, God, that we would proclaim the good news. Thank you, Lord, for all of your attributes and your perfection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.